Coaching Inside the Box. A youth soccer coaching podcast. A Brit, a Brazilian, and an American discuss culture and environment and the impact it has on youth development. Can you coach inside the box? Beep, beep. Hello. We are back. Episode 25. That means uh, we've made it a quarter of a century worth of podcasts um, if a century was just numbers that you counted up, right? So you say quarter of Andy's age? Quarter of Andy's age. Hey, hold on. Hold <laughs> Philippe, on. right out the gate. <laughs> we, we just had this big you know, discussion of which episode is this, so we're not actually sure whether this is episode 25. No, we are this time because we looked and, it up. And you're criticizing me for being old and decrepit and not having a good mind. and you know, and, Those and, are your words, hey, not Philippe's. I'm, I'm not criticizing. I hope I can get to leave that long <laughs> <laughs> well what's this is probably appropriate that Philippe and Andy are starting out nose to nose because this is the first episode where our chosen topic um, du jour um, is in uh, entirely in response to something Philippe said last episode if you remember the comment that Philippe said where he used the word bored and Andy lost it um, uh, this is uh, in response to that because we're going to talk about fun um, we're going to talk about how much fun soccer and soccer training and youth development can be when you focus on the right things. Is that a fair fair representation of our plan today? Yeah, and I'm going to jump right in here because these podcasts are absolutely no fun for me. You know, because, you know, our Brazilian friend over here lords it over the rest of the world, you know. So he rubs our nose in the fact that Brazil is so superior in the game of soccer, you know. And whether he's right or he's wrong, he's wrong to do that. You know, if somebody is so bad at the game that, you know, that, that you know, your team, you know, walks all over them, you should not, you know, set a bad example, you know, and just stomp on other people. And he really hurts my feelings when he, <laughs> when he does this. I think he also got upset the other day when I text you guys that Denmark, Greece have euros and england don't <laughs> that was a funny text i don't think i responded to it but i did see it yeah yeah thank you for, <laughs> for that wait do, do the united states have the same number of euros as england yeah oh, zero interesting because we're not even well, in Europe. hold on a second and <laughs> you know now i'm gonna just stick a knife into my own back here but you know, it, within CONCACAF, the United States has a thousand times better record than England does in Europe. You know, so, you know, there's Copa America and Brazil has dominated Copa America since the year dot, you know. And, and then there's CONCACAF and the USA has dominated CONCACAF, one or two, you know. And then there's England in Europe and we, we all know how that's gone. <laughs> so, so I think Europe to, is a higher level than CONCACAF, generally speaking. But you guys have countries like... Uh, uh, San Greece Marino. and Denmark, they're one. <laughs> San Marino, and we've got countries like uh, Antigua and Barbados, so they're both of the equal we, We've got the powerhouses, Gibraltar and Liechtenstein. <laughs> they, they're, they're awesome. I've always really enjoyed watching Lutz Luxembourg's team play. They, like, they play with a panache that is much bigger than the size of that small country. <laughs> All right, back to fun. So, um, so... As, as, as a youth coach, I think our number one responsibility is to ensure that the kids want to come back the next time, right? And, um, and I think I've maybe mentioned this on this podcast before just in passing, but for me, I think it comes down to wanting to return the next time is either because they had an absolute ton of fun or because they felt an absolute ton of value. They got, they got better, right? And, or a combination, most often a combination of the two. When they're younger, I think it's more built around fun. And that slowly shifts to when they're 15, 16, 17 years old. Um, their fun is largely had because they love the game, despite it being really difficult um, in training. And they want to they return because they felt a ton of value, right? Like nothing was more frustrating to me than in high school when we'd have these just you know piddly little sessions that were of, of, of no intensity, of no energy. Um, and I didn't feel like it was really worth the time that I'd spent on the field versus the 1v1 or 2v2 knockdown drag out events that we had as 16, 17 year olds in Andy's practice in a Dust Bowl. Those sucked. Like they weren't fun, um, right? <laughs> Other than the fact that 
I loved being really good at the game, and I knew that that was part of what got me there. And when I went to the session, I knew that every second of every moment of that session, if I chose to be plugged in and turned on, were of value. I got better uh, both on the field and off. Um, and it's I think it's a balance, those, right? It's a balance. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so hold that thought because. Uh, I had a feeling that you'd start off, and we don't rehearse this, you know, if anybody's thinking we rehearse this, but this is the perfect segue to The Courtship of Arthur and Al by James Thurber. I've, I've, I've read this a couple times, actually. You have? Both in Italian and Greek. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they I both walk, have euros. I walked into that one, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to ignore all those comments and I'm going to tell the story. Once upon a time, there was a young beaver named Al and an older beaver named Arthur. They were both in love with a pretty little female. She looked with disfavor upon the young beaver's attentions because... Wait, did you say beaver? Yeah, beaver. Are you reading a story about beavers? <laughs> Stop interrupting my story. This is very important. Audience, I'm sorry. I'm sure you're uh, you know, on the edge of your seat, eager to find out what Al and the beaver does next. <laughs> Al, Arthur and Al. <laughs> you just stomped on Arthur now. His ego is hurt. <laughs> so she looked with dis- disfavor upon the young beaver's attentions because he played all day. This is important in, in relative to what we were just talking about. He'd never done a single day of work in his life. For he preferred to eat and sleep, swim lazily in the streams, and to play tag with the girls. Who wouldn't? The older beaver had never done anything but work from the time he got his first teeth. He'd never played anything with anybody. When the young beaver asked the female to marry him, she said she wouldn't think of it unless he amounted to something. She reminded him that Arthur had built 32 dams, respect, and was working on three others, whereas he, Al, had never even made a breadboard or a pin tray in his life. Al was very sorry, but he said he just wouldn't work because a woman wanted him to. So he went back to eating and sleeping, swimming in the streams and playing tag with the girls. The pretty little female married Arthur one day during lunch hour because he could never get away from work for more than one hour at a time. They had seven children and Arthur worked so hard to support them that he wore his poor teeth down to the gum line. His health collapsed and he died early without ever having a vacation in his life. The young beaver continued to eat and sleep and swim in the streams and play tags with the girls. He never got anywhere, but he had a long life and a wonderful time. The moral of the story is, <laughs> it's, it's better to have loafed and lost than never to have loafed at all. <laughs> Where did you find that story? And I'm curious what beaver tag looks like. <laughs> We're not going there. <laughs> but, but, you know, isn't this the point? I mean, you know, we're talking about one-on-ones and how gruesome. You introduce how gruesome this can be. So this is the Arthur component, right? You know, you know, our guys wear their poor teeth down to the gums while they're playing one-on-ones. Right? But there's also a ton of, you know, what Al did, you know, that, you know, that play. So it, it's not about, you know, just playing for the sake of play's sake. You know, it's about having the ball, loving the ball. You know, it's incredible fun to do the things that you do in one-on-ones when you take the fatigue factor out of it. But the fatigue factor is very specific to the game. You know, makes you a warrior, and you have to have that if you're going to be able to compete at the highest level. So you've got to find a way to make it fun while it's also gruesome physiologically, you know, because after you get your breath back, you remember the fun. You remember the great goal you scored. You know, the, you know how you broke their ankles with the Maradona turn. You know, you don't remember the fact that, you know, you were heaving and panting when you came back in to give the score after a three-minute round of one-on-ones. And, I mean, it's worth mentioning, like, the totality of the session was not fun. But the moment when I did a Matthews and beat somebody and buried it in the far corner, Brilliant. that moment was fun. Even if it didn't bring a smile to my face, it was one of satisfaction, one of joy, one of one of confidence, one of puff my chest out. Like I can do that. Like and and so you have you know thirty or forty or fifty of those dotted through an hour and a half long session, and it gets you coming back for more. And that's what makes it all worth it, right? So you think about a soccer game. The scores of a soccer game are not usually you know, 12 to 10. Like, that's not how the reality of the sports work. Um, 
So soccer is decided in small moments of success. 2-1, 1-0, 3-2, you know, the scores are limited. So those are the moments, those little, it's one moment in 90 minutes that sometimes will change the game, will make everything work. We'll make sorry. We'll make everything worth it. So you play the 90 minutes. You you know defended. You hustled and you went back and you tackled and you you know it was painful and all that. You get to score one goal and you win a World Cup. So all that pain was worth it for that moment. So it's the same thing with one on ones and the stuff that we do when we have that one moment that we do something magical, something beautiful, something super excited, something that you always remember. Everybody remembers the best goal they scored when they were young. Everybody remembers the best skill they did, something that they couldn't even imagine they would do. Everybody has the, those memories. Those are the memories that stick. It's not, you know, just winning the game, making a sideways and backwards, having a 99% passing accuracy in a game or something like that. It, that, that doesn't bring any real, real long-term joy to, to a kid. In my opinion. Speaking of the best goal that you ever scored as a youth player and remembering that, have you ever heard the story of Andy's best goal that he ever scored as a youth player? Oh, no, I've, did, I've heard did, a bunch did of them. You have to go there. Andy was, Andy was playing, right? And, it, and, it, and he was playing in the back, and somebody just a screamer across the six yard box, and Andy went to clear it out, caught it perfectly, upper 90. I mean, just barely under the crossbar and inside the post. I mean, it, it his was, own post. Sure. Okay. <laughs> but it was the best that he ever scored. He's never forgot it. I've heard the story numerous times. I mean, he just walloped that thing, just caught it on the wrong side of his foot. That, that one I hadn't heard. I heard a bunch of stories about his magical tackles, how he <laughs> threw guys up over the stands and stuff like that. But that one, it's like a nice finish. It was it was incredible. It it screamed and it bent, you know, because I sliced the ball because I was trying to put it over the stand on the other side of the field, and I hit it late and sliced it. And Chris Rose, the goalie, you know, just literally watched it go into his top corner. <laughs> he, had, he wasn't ready; had no chance to react, you know. And uh, I was can this semi-pro was this for like Oxford? Yeah, it, it was. What are you, sixteen or so? Oh, uh, 18. I've forgotten. I try to forget, but. <laughs> I used to wake up in the middle of the night screaming. <laughs> well, I told, so, but I took my boys away for a tournament this weekend in St. Louis, and um, I told one of the sisters of one of the boys, Kinsey Chain, had been working on her flip throw. She's just started playing soccer again from gymnastics. Oh, she's a heck of a gymnast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so she's been working on her flip throw. So I mentioned to her mom, remind me in St. Louis to tell you, the boys the story of the time I threw the ball in my own net. I don't know if you'll remember this. We were over at 122nd. I've tried to forget. I can't. We're <laughs> 122nd in a tournament, and it was the third group game, and apparently we tied earlier in the in the, in the tournament, and so we needed a, a clean sheet. If we had a clean sheet, we went through to the next to the next round to the final, and uh, at the time you'd had this theme of like taking free kicks quick, taking corner or corner or uh, throw-ins quick. And so, and it was also in this, this era is the time when you could throw it back to your keeper and he could pick it up. And Matt Wesley was a goalkeeper and I picked it up quickly. I was probably a good 30 yards up the field from the corner flag, but I could throw it a pretty good distance, picked it up quickly, turn and just launch it to Matt. The keeper who wasn't paying attention, Matt saw you, it. You didn't look before you launched it, of course. I know, never did. That's who you <laughs> yeah, were. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't want to give it away. It's like to no the, passing skills. I didn't <laughs> want to give it away to the other team where I was going with the ball. Right, so it was a no look throw in. Uh, Matt reacts to it late, gets his hand to it, and it still ends up in the back of the net. We won five to one, but we did not advance to the final because I literally threw the ball at my own net. That's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's poor coaching because you should tell your kids not throw in the direction of the goal. So if the keeper misses it, it's a corner, not a, a goal kick. Well, so I put fair, that one no, on. Well, hold on. If the keeper misses it and it goes in, it's not a goal it because count. somebody's got to touch it. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> he not got any. So Matt, Matt actually <laughs> scored the goal for the other team. So Andy yeah. didn't even explain the rules for for his for his players. So double double coaching fault on that. It's one um, of those things you never anticipate happening. You know. <laughs> so you think it's a waste of time until it happens and you think maybe I should have talked about that <laughs> wait you should think of everything when with you're me you've got to cover everything everything <laughs> very literal too but there's no way to anticipate craziness so you know we can't cover everything with you because you've been plum crazy since you were you know I first started coaching you at age six or whatever yeah, yeah absolutely <laughs> <laughs> uh, back back to fun so Andy you've got something in front of you share it 
So, you know, this is fun, the essential element. You know, simply put, the young player loves to dribble and shoot. Give her a basketball hoop, a soccer goal, or a hop- hockey net, and she will dribble and shoot for many a fun hour. Teach her the fakes, moves, finishing techniques that allow her to feel her skills constantly improving, and the extra success will help her to love the sport. Dribbling and shooting are the most enjoyable skills. Until approximately age 12, when the dawning of tactical awareness occurs, children are very me-oriented and will enjoy activities where they get to be the center of attention over and above those that relegate them to support roles. Passing and receiving relegate children to a less enjoyable support role, whereas dribbling and shooting gives them center stage and satisfies their inherent need for selfish gratification. The enjoyment of one's own fantastic individual skills leads to hours of absorbed play with the soccer ball. The greatest players ever, i.e. Pelé, Cruyff and Maradona, for example, have well-documented histories of love for long hours of play with the ball. Their enjoyment of ball contact taught them incredible skills and provided the basis for a greater range of tactical options than the next strata of famous players from their eras. Furthermore, as a natural result of long hours of dribbling, shooting, receiving, passing and heading, they also developed a high level of specific soccer fitness. The modern-day coach should try to rekindle the kind of passion for the game that these players exhibited when they were young. The number one... Motivational source at the early age is fun, so practice should focus on dribbling and shooting, the two most most enjoyable soccer skills. The coach, excuse me, I've been drinking. It's early in the morning, but uh, I I just had to have a bottle of brandy to put up with Philippe and his Portuguese nonsense. The, The coach should position practice goals very close together and expect each player to perform a fake prior to shooting or passing to encourage the maximal use of these skills. A tremendous love of the game will also be developed by limiting ball-to-player ratios. At the early developmental stages, an emphasis on one versus one is ideal. This is because every player is guaranteed significant time on the ball, 50%, and there are many fun and dribbling shooting games involving a ball each or between two. These games can be conditioned to require a fake at frequent intervals. In this way, practice can be structured to promote dribbling and finishing, thereby maximizing fun and enjoyment. Conversely, a heavy emphasis on teamwork, passing and receiving, will make practices less enjoyable for the young player. And I finish with the inevitable quote, the creation of something new is not accomplished by the intellect, but by the play instinct acting from inner necessity. The creative mind plays with the objects it loves. And that's Carl Jung. He wasn't that important. You know, possibly the greatest philosopher that ever lived. But there we are. Have you read Kyle in Greek? Because his original form is the best. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good segue, I think, to really at the, the meat of, of what, what I wanted to discuss in this specific episode, which is... I mean, I think most coaches listening would agree, oh, yeah, 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 like my kids have to have fun. Like that's a simple concept to get. And they understand the the, the, the balance between fun and value work, right? And, and and kids need to have a balance between the two, and that balance is shifting, right? The, 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 the fulcrum of the balance shifts as kids get older, experience different, you know, different, you know, different things within their life. But, but at the core of that, where we think that we've got it right and um, not enough of the youth soccer world has it right also, is that at the center, at the core of, of, of providing, you know, value, efficiency, f- fun, right, and, and value at the same time, is dribbling and shooting. Those are the two skills that, that make it an absolute whale of a time and both of value. I mean, don't get me wrong, right? Like, if I showed up with a Frisbee to my soccer practice tonight and said, guys, we're going to play Ultimate Frisbee, the kids would have a ton of fun. But there's very, very little, if any, value to that from the soccer team development perspective, right? Um, So there are things that you can do that are fun, um, that are different, but dribbling and shooting are at the core of that. And I think the best example that I like to draw out for, uh, I do for parents all the time, but for American audience, is when 
you know, we see all these basketball courts, basketball goals in, in yards all across America or in drives all across America. The kids don't go and work on their chess passes, right? They don't go and work on the three-man weave, right? If there's three players there, they play 1v1v1 or knockout or some or horse, some game that involves dribbling to break down the opponent and shooting because it leads into, as Kyle Young said there, that inner creativity that exists within every kid um, and that that opportunity to create something unique, a different, something that the opposing team cannot or opposing defender cannot anticipate. Um, and that's, I assume, what made you, Philippe, fall in love with the game um, that we've covered many times on this this podcast, you know, at the, in the basement, or not the basement, at the fl- ground level of your apartment complex uh, in, in, in Rio, um, playing on the concrete court. Yeah, 100%. Like, same thing. There was no, never a a play that we would do that would involve any passing. It was just, even when we did our version of Rondo, it's like 2v1, one guy's defending, you get a ball, you beat that guy and pass to the other guy, and you keep trying to make the guy, you you know, do a rainbow and stuff, and then you pass to the other guy, and then he has to chase the other guy. We would do that on the beach all the time, you know, two, three friends. Just one defending and the the other two. Everything involved dribbling and shooting. Everything. It's always playing, always playing. Like it never stayed across 20 yards and passing the ball back and forth. Never, never. I cannot think of one time that I've done that. It was always dribbling, shooting, and doing stuff like that. See, we had way more fun in England because we stuck it in the mixer. We played the way that we faced, you know, (laughs) and, and we got rid of it. You know, so and knee-high tackles on our best friend next door. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, Stud yeah, marks yeah, up yeah. by the groin were yeah, just, yeah. you know, A1. Yeah. You know, best, yeah, best. Yeah. His mom comes out, Andy, you really got him this time, <laughs> didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> but, but this is, the, you know, Brazilian society is, I think, from everything that I've, I've, I've read and studied, you know, it's, it's more fun. You know, they, you know, I mean, is there a bigger party in the world than Carnival? You know, it's... It's it's built around samba. It's built around you know the love of life. You know it's not all about you know British society. It's a grind. You know growing up, you know there was you know it was you know just grind until you make it. You know and a lot of people didn't make it. They just you know they were Arthur. You know the Beaver. You know they maybe that's why they wore their teeth down to the gums, grinding. Grind until you make it is definitely not how I grew up because I grew up fake it until you make it, right? Like, and there's a difference culturally there, and I I say fake it not in like this different way, but it's just like I'm just going to keep trying until it happens, right? Not in a grinding way, but in a you know a, a faking it kind of way, like fakes and moves and trying to figure it out how to make make life happen, how to make the soccer on the field happen. Yeah, and honestly, yesterday I saw an interview that was fantastic by uh, Lucien Burgu. He was uh, he coached Real Madrid when uh, the Galacticos era and coached the Brazilian national team, and he was saying how the development of Brazilian players is not as good as it used to be in the late '90s and early '80s. You know, like th- that era since Pele and all those guys. Because of even in the academies in Brazil, they are focusing way too much on the tactical side. You know, they get these kids that are age 12 and they're phenomenal technically because they played street soccer up until then. But then at that point, they start just teaching the tactical, the tactical, the tactical. And what he's saying is like the kids back in the days, they would play in small fields with dirt and they would just play all day long. And that's what actually developed the players. And now they put these kids on. And it was funny because, like, the terms that he used is exactly what we talk about. So he said, now they're putting these kids on those big fields and working on patterns and tactics and one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. And the kids, you know, now we're touching the ball ten times. Back in the days, they, they would play in those smaller fields, dirt. They would, you know, lose their – they would play barefoot. They would lose the – tip of their toes and you know they would just play and have fun and not be bothered with any of that and they would touch the ball 500 times and the game was faster uh the the level of the surface was not great so that their touch was better and all that and the kids just played and now it's too much oh let's copy europe let's copy it and we're losing our identity hopefully this national team is since 
you know, we won the last World Cup in 2002 is the national team that has more creativity. That's why I think Brazil is going to do well in the World Cup. But again, it, it's it's just not enough. Like, I, I'm glad like somebody like him that is like uh, referencing Brazilian soccer in terms of coaching and all that. He's rec recognizing the same thing. And he says the the solution is the, the government should put small arenas all over the country. And you don't need to make it super fancy. Put put dirt, but just small-sided games so the kids can play and just play, have fun, dribble. And he he mentioned that, like, all, all they do in the academies now is one touch to touch, one touch to touch, one touch to touch, and don't dribble, don't dribble, don't dribble. And he's like, that's not how it should be. These kids should be dribbling until they... Keep dribbling. Let, let's, let's, let's be honest. You know, is what you're doing now is you're emulating the greatest country in world history is, you know, is England. <laughs> you know, and so <laughs> yeah. why wouldn't you emulate England exactly. with, its, with its failure in the European Championships and its one lucky World Cup? I mean, it, you if know? you think about it, like American <laughs> soccer has largely emulated England over the last 40 years, probably, um, with, a, you know, an influx of British coaches like you yourself, Andy. And it has brought us many CONCACAF Gold Club championships. And so maybe that's where Brazil's going wrong, if you haven't emulated. <laughs> <laughs> England enough, um, yeah, but I, I mean, who knows? Can, can, I, can I read this because this is great segue into this piece? You know, this is by Paul Gardner, and Paul Gardner is one of my all-time Soccer America, right? Soccer Mega Man, great pundit for the game, a fantastic writer. But you know, saw things out of the box. You know, he and possibly Barney Roney with the Guardian, you know, are my two favorite ever because they see things from a very different, unique, and more creative perspective. So this is from Paul Gardner. Evidently, there is something irrepressible about the urge to dribble a soccer ball. It is deeply embedded in the game, an absolutely fundamental element. While it may be stretching things too far to say that soccer is dribbling, the skill is certainly at the heart of the sport. Soccer is not soccer without it. Dribbling is the most intricate, the most exciting, the most wondrous of soccer skills. It is the creative player's chance to express himself, to add his own touches and flourishes, to inject his own personality into the game. You can see that it is a highly enjoyable skill, both for the dribbler and for the spectators. And it is the most intimate, the most personal of the sport's skills. Dribbling is the body language of soccer. And inevitably, no two players dribble alike. I, I love that dribbling is the body language of soccer. I'm writing it down because uh, I love that how that's presented. Um, you know, one thing that 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 I've mentioned before on on this podcast, and I say often when talking to uh, coaches across the country, um, the it's easy to highlight what makes Brazil special, right? Like this, like when we do that, that is not. That is not something that's never been done before, right? Like people recognize that Brazil is special because of the street soccer culture. Um, uh, the challenge we have is that I think people oftentimes talk around it and never come up with real specific solutions to how it how how it can be addressed or implemented within their own culture, right? Uh, um, Germany famously, when they when they uh, missed out on the two thousand euros, I believe is the correct one, um, uh, went around and built a ton of small sided. Uh, the government did, I think, or the, the AFA, um, a small-sided uh, fields all across Germany, and, and the renaissance of German football came not too long after. Um, and here in the United States, like, what are things that we can do culturally um, that fit within our cultural constraints, our cultural uh, structure that 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 still provide the same opportunity that Brazil has, right? Because we don't have favelas, and so. Oftentimes, we've talked about the facilities that we've put in and the structure at which we've created within our own facilities and our own club and our own environment provides an opportunity for players to, you know, to dribble, to, to, to develop their own, own body language of soccer. And I think that that's the challenge that oftentimes coaches miss is they can talk about, oh, we're missing that. We don't have that street soccer culture. Let's just set up a Friday night, you know, uh, you know, I see this all the time. We're, we're going to start doing Friday night um, kick around futsal things at the gym, right? And it lasts two months. And that's great. Don't get me wrong. Kids playing is great. But like, that's not enough. 
to really respond to what we in, in America are missing. It has missing. to be a daily thing. It has to be a daily thing. And it, and it can't be, oh, let's do it a few times, and then we'll get back to our pattern play and our play the way face yeah. and our one-two touch. Because then trade. you're well, teaching two different things. Exactly, yeah, the, yeah. There's no consistency. The kids go there, and they try to do the fun stuff, and then the next day they're told not to do that. So, like... The kid gets like, okay, what am I supposed to be doing? You have a quote, the mushy middle or something I remember hearing as a kid. Or you always used to say, avoid the mushy middle or something. Yeah, don't play to the mushy middle. Yeah. You know, you go to the extreme. You know, and, and, you know, what most people do is, you know, it's like these these fun kick around things. You know, people are are trying to put lipstick on a pig. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's a really good point. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, oh, we do these, you know, know, these creative, you know, anything goes kick arounds. You you have to train to be creative. Correct. You know, I've got a daughter that's an artist, and she trained like crazy on her line, you know, and, and just beat, you know, the getting the right line. She used to preach this to me. I've got to get the right line, Dad. I've got to get the right line. So she spent years, you know, with her technique, you know, and to be creative, you have to have great technique, you know, and so the environment has to really promote great technique, you know, and only then can you re- release your your true creativity because, you know, you can back it up with action, you know. But there's a greater problem in society, and I wanted to read this because this is really pertinent to what we're discussing. Before now. you do that, I want to mention one uh, anecdote. No, no, I want to read this first. Well, I'm, no, I'm, well, I'm just I'm kidding. I'm, just I'm kidding. the host. <laughs> I'm the host. Uh, besides, you're old enough, you'll forget that I did this later. So, What's your name? Um, <laughs> There's a, there's a local coach here in town that um, a couple times a year, every year, I think typically during school breaks or the summer, he'll he'll get on Facebook and he'll you know really promote this no coaching, no parent. It's not a parent led event, and he'll at a local park and he'll get kids to come out and we're just gonna play we're just gonna play a kicker out like we're, the kids are just gonna play and they, they can organize themselves and go and it's a cool little event right or big event it's grown like you know hey we had 150 kids out representing seven different clubs. Don't get me wrong, that is wonderful. But that's flash in the pan stuff. Like if there's no commitment past that, that's the daily grind or the or the weekly experience that's encouraging that play. If you then get to your training sessions and work on attack versus defense, like you're missing the forest through the trees. But so many coaches, not just here locally, all across the United States, probably across the world, then pat themselves on the back, make a Facebook post. How great is this? Everybody applauds them because the idea was good, but without any follow through, it's literally of all. Almost no value. And I say that because there's possibly coaches here in, 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 in our audience that are doing that, are, are creating these moments. But like I'm communicating to you, while that is a start, it is nothing. You've got to go way deeper to that than that to really create an environment and a culture that's going to encourage dribbling um, is the body language of soccer and helping kids develop their own body language, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it makes absolute sense. And let me read this because, I, you know, I think this will lead to obviously greater depth of thought. Um, you know, and so it, it's once again, it's finding the balance between just play and playing with a purpose. So listen to this. Without time to explore and experiment, children can become restless, jittery, and even anxious. Soon they lose interest in learning. Test scores plummet. And educators react by clamping down even harder. And so the vicious cycle goes on. Sadly, the love of learning isn't the only thing lost in the mix. Children also lose the chance to gain confidence in their own abilities. They lack independence, self-motivation, and ambition. These are the sad consequences of wrenching apart the innate tendencies of the child's work and play. In 2009, a Scientific American article entitled The Serious Need for Play, stated, unstructured imaginative play is critical for becoming socially adept, coping with stress, and building cognitive skills such as problem solving. Maria Montessori said play is the work of the child. When children are allowed to explore their world through meaningful activities, they can learn an unfathomable amount about their world. In a prepared environment, such as a Montessori classroom, children can both experience and play at the same time. And I think what she's getting at, and she's the most famous educator ever in the history of of, young kids' education, what she's getting at is there is structure, 
you know, but there's also a tremendous amount of creative experimentation, you know, and go into the extreme of just letting them play is a waste of time. Go into the extreme of, you know, one touch, two touch, you know, and regiment in their play is a waste of time. What you've got to do is you've got to find the sweet spot which is in the middle of you know, you know, rules and regulations that allow them to take their creativity, the ragged edge, you know, without restriction, you know, and optimize everything at once. You know, not just their foot skills, not just their ability to finish, you know, but their aerobic fitness, their anaerobic fitness, you know, their, their reaction time, their imagination, you know, their speed of cognition. All of these things can be optimized if you have the right, system and the right exercises to get the results you're seeking who was the author of that was that you or was that maria montessori maria montessori said the last part yeah and the the first part was from a scientific american article called the serious need for play because because i wrote down like the the the, the need to explore unstructured imaginative play is absolutely critical and so the question that i'm asking the audience now is you reflect on your coaching or the teams that or the 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 the, the soccer that your child participates in how much of that is 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 their ability to explore, to experiment, to make mis- make make mistakes? Um, how much of it consists of unstructured imaginative play, right? Meaning, how much of it really allows them to be creative and go for it and do and and come up with unique solutions to different problems that exist within within uh, our sport? Because critical would tell me that it should be more than the 10 minutes at the end of practice that you do every time for um, uh, for your scrimmage as a coach, right? It Critical tells me that it should be the lion's share, 60%, 70%, 75%. Is that even enough of, of, of your time that you're running a session for your kids? Critical, and this is this is Maria Montessori. This is this is the the the, the queen. This is the the leader of, of educational theory in many respects over the last uh, I don't know fifty years here um, uh, across the world. And so, if she's saying it's critical, but you're spending you know twenty percent of your sessions in 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 direction or non directional keep away where everybody has to take two touches, are you really pushing that exploration, or you're spending thirty? percent of your session in um in in lined shooting drills or lined passing drills or um structured fast footwork skills where there's a specific pattern that the kid must do when they're dribbling through the cones because that is not unstructured imaginative play that is critical to a healthy child and 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 if there's one message you get from this 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 episode is Reevaluate, 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 reflect, 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 look at your sessions and figure out how to probably significantly increase the unstructured imaginative play that exists within your sessions. And if you need help with it, our 1v1, 2v2, and 4v4 practice concept is the best in our humble opinion that we've ever seen um, for doing that week in, week out, session in, session out, for creating players that are. Um, dribbling and developing their body language of soccer and then if they're going to continue with their soccer career they're going to go to high school they're going to go to college they're going to go to the professional level and they'll get all that stuff all that structure because that at that point they do need to win the games they do need to you know be doing that kind of stuff if they have the core of the skills the bravery the creativity they can easily adapt to that and they won't lose that confidence in the right moment doing those things. So they, it's not like we're creating kids that will drib, dribble, you know, without thinking and just be dumb players and all that. No, they're going to be the complete opposite. They're going to have the tools to then, when they get to that environment and they learn that stuff, they're also going to have the tools to do what's different because it's easy to defend against a team that is just pattern, 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 touch, 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 touch. Every team that is successful has a special player, at least one special player that can do what breaks down the defense. You look at the professional level, the amount of cameras, the scouting and everything, everybody knows what PSG is going to do. Can they stop Messi, Neymar and Mbappe? Very rarely. And you look at every team, you have one or two players that are these players that can do what's different. And that's when the system works. 
because then you have to open up a little bit because they open up the other defense that is prepared against that system. So the players will learn that, but they cannot learn that at 12. They have to, at 12, 13, 14, 15, they have to be learning how to be brave, creative with the ball, be skillful and do what's different, do what the other kids won't be able to do. It's interesting. As I'm sitting here, I'm listening to, you know, Philippe speak English. <laughs> this isn't abuse. This is actually a compliment. For once, it's not abusive. <laughs> and, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, my God, this is his second language and he's making total sense. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't have a second language. I Maybe can, co I can, Cockney rhyme and slang. I can you talk know. in Spanish too if you want. <laughs> I found that out the other day when we were talking to Daniel. Yeah. You know, you know that. Your, Sp your Spanish is, is fluent. And, and so, you know, I'm humbled by the fact that you're able to do this in my language and probably make more sense than I do. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but let me read this because, you know, this is uh, Daniel Pink is one of my favorite authors. And this is uh, from his book, A Whole New Mind. He writes, the last few decades have belonged to a certain type of person with a certain kind of mind. Computer programmers who could crank code, lawyers who could craft contracts, MBAs who could crunch numbers. But the keys to the kingdom are changing hands. The future belongs to a very different kind of person with a very different kind of mind. Creators and empathizers, pattern recognizers and meaning makers. High touch involves the ability to empathize. These people, artists, inventors, designers, storytellers, caregivers, consolers, big picture thinkers will now reap society's richest rewards and share in its greatest joys. Today, the defining skills of the previous era, the left brain capabilities that powered the information age are necessary but no longer sufficient. And the capabilities we once disdained or thought frivolous, the right brain qualities of inventiveness, empathy, joyfulness, and meaning increasingly will determine who flourishes and who flounders. For individuals, families, and organizations, professional success and personal fulfillment now require a whole new mind. It's the combination. It's not Arthur or Al. It's Al Arthur or Arthur Al. <laughs> That's corny. I just made it up. <laughs> but, as you can tell, we do not rehearse these things. <laughs> um, well, I... Professional success and, and personal fulfillment, I think, is is an interesting thought, right? Like, when you think of, like, <clears throat> and we've talked about Legends for Life, and, and we've mentioned Andy's, Andy's second book, Legends for Life, and, and how really what we do, or our, our vision, our, our mission, is is to use soccer as a vehicle to teach life lessons. And, and, and everything that we do on the field and the way in which we teach the game is meant to be character development to build it off of it. Um, and, and really... Professional success and personal development, I think, perfectly embody what we're wanting to create for the kids that we work with. And, and I mean, if I could get on a soapbox again for you as a coach and you reflect on the sessions that you're running, are you, are you leaning into what Daniel Pink says? Are you leaning into recognizing that creators and empathizers and artists and inventors and storytellers, those are the future? And are your sessions built around encouraging more creativity, um, encouraging a willingness to, to try something different and uh, encouraging a bravery a level of bravery that is not afraid to fail. And if you're not on the ragged edge of that from a coaching perspective, from an environment creator, creating perspective, then I think you're actually chopping off the knees of your players in their quest for future professional success and personal fulfillment. Um, and, and, and that's a change that our society hopefully is making that can really drive us forward, right? I listened to a podcast on the way over. Um, uh, California has just enacted a law um, that I think by the year 2035, no new cars in California can be sold um, that are not electric um, uh, electric vehicles. No more gas-powered uh, cars can be sold in 2035, new cars. And like the whole podcast was built around like there's a future that's different than our past. And um, whether you agree or disagree, I, I, mean, I don't know any of the techni technique, but I love the thought process of 
people trying to drive us forward to the next level of our society. And those people were not built in a youth environment that was sideways and backwards. That's for damn sure. Right, those pe- those people were built in a society where they were encouraged to go for it. Richard Branson, right? Parents dropped him off two miles from home and said, "Good luck, get home, kid." Right? That create that creativity um, uh, that that Branson's parents put in front of him is two part miles. Of his, it was like ninety I, miles. I don't know. I've just I've only heard the story from <laughs> on you. the other side of London. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, he had to negotiate London, which is crazy. You know, when he was, you know, nine years old or something ridiculous, you know. But when you've got a two-footed tackle that he must have had having grown up in London, it was probably easier for him than it would have been for Philippe. <laughs> I don't know. I would talk my way around. <laughs> so, you know, d- d- talking to your point, and uh, I, I've got, this is absolute brilliance. Once again, um, by Paul Gardner. Uh, Our boy. Yes, uh, uh, is res- he what, is respect it, Paul when, when we were kids Soccer America came and like interviewed you and wrote a whole article about the approach that actually it was Dan Wogue out of Massachusetts and he was like a, an independent writer for okay. Soccer America but I remember that session well Dean was so pumped yeah Dan's a great guy you yeah. know just you know once again, original thinker out of the box yep. you know just a, a new age man you know a tr- tremendous writer sees things differently from other people, you know, authored a great book that I would strongly suggest everybody buy. You know, what's and, it called? Uh, I forget the name of the book, of but course. his name is Dan, and it's W O O G Woke. You know, and I followed him, at, you know, ever since he came out and you know and and visited. Yeah, we, uh, us. we were probably eight or nine at the, at the time. Yeah, and he came yeah. out, you know, and uh, you know, I, I put him up at the house and and uh, you know, wined him and dined him, but most importantly, you know, he just studied everything that we did, you know, and he was incredibly respectful wrote wonderful article about it mm-hmm. you know and and just uh, just a good man totally good man but listen to this by paul gardner watching Lionel messi play soccer gives me intense delight let's go back to the fun element here the only other player who comes close to creating the free-spirited aura of enjoyment that messi displays is cristiano ronaldo but messi is really in a class of his own I'm tempted every time I write about Messi to make artistic comparisons because as I see it, it is the artistry in Messi's play that gives it a special quality. So Messi is the Mozart of soccer. Not a bad comparison, that. Mozart was famously on the receiving end of a notorious criticism from Emperor Joseph II. Too many notes, Mozart. And you will often hear Messi accused of taking too many touches on the ball. Or over-elaborating. True? Who knows? When imaginative genius is turned on, is there any stopping it? Should it be curtailed, reined in to satisfy the mundane notions of lesser mortals? A disciplined Mozart, a disciplined Messi. Does any of that sound right to you? Disciplined by whom? Frankly, when I watch Messi, I find myself regretting that there aren't more touches from this enchanted little master. Enchanting, then, yes, I believe that's the word to describe Messi, for he leaves me spellbound. Not just me, not just the other spectators, but surely he is also casting a magical spell over his opponents, who can be seen time and time again shaking their heads at the wonder of what Messi has just done. No doubt in awe at the thought that there seems to be nothing they can do to stem this inspired force. There is a further lovely link between Mozart and Messi, that of the boy genius. Mozart wrote his first opera when he was 12 years old. His musical genius was already overflowing his small body. If you've seen those shaky videos of the young, tiny Messi scoring goals at will, you will know that a joyful, flowing stream of Mozart notes, too many of them, of course, is the music that should go with the boyish impishness that was Messi in those not-so-far-off days. Messi was 12 years old as recently as 1999. Such is the overwhelming sense of artistry that Messi conveys that it is quite natural to talk of the poetry in his play. And the voice that comes to mind is that of another young genius, John Keats, most sensual of poets. And with him comes a reminder of the sheer beauty of Messi's play. 
There is a great beauty in the way that Messi glides and moves on the soccer field, athletic and balletic, the qualities that make soccer such an appealing sport. It was Keats who told us that beauty is truth, truth, beauty. That is all ye know on earth and all ye need to know. In displaying the beauty that soccer can bring, Messi also reveals the truth, too often hidden in this era, that beauty lies at the heart of this sport. That is the real truth of soccer. Those who like to boast of playing ugly, and oh yes, there are plenty of them, are committing a dark crime against their own sport. Both Keats and Mozart lived in times when death often struck early. Mozart was dead at 35. Keats at 25. Their art never lost its boyishness. It never had the time to become old. We shall have Messi for a good many years yet. Can we hope that the boyishness that lights up his game will never diminish? Yes, it seems we can. Messi, in a short, simple, elegant statement given to Italy's set magazine has let us know what playing soccer means to him as Keats would want it it is so beautifully described it can only be the truth hear ye Leo said I do everything through instinct I play like a child I think about myself on a small field or in a street I see myself with the ball in the same way as I am now I have not changed at all you must remember soccer is a game to have fun, and you play for that. I don't plan or anticipate my play. That is a superb cri de coeur from a 23-year-old who believes, who feels that the right way to play soccer is as a boy with all the boyish enthusiasms and delights, and the naivety too, of course. From Mozart and Keats to Karl Marx is quite a leap. But Messi, in those sharp, shining sentences, has unwittingly, no doubt, written a manifesto for today's players, revealing to them that they play this game far too often under the shadow of the mind controllers, the joy destroyers, the coaches. Ouch. <laughs> How much more subversive of modern coaching theories can you get than to proclaim that you do everything by instinct, that you still play the way you did as a boy, that you haven't changed at all, that you play for fun, that you don't anticipate or plan anything. Players of the world unite. You have nothing to lose but your tactical chains. No, of course not. Messi is not looking to start a revolution, at least not with his words. If changes come to soccer from Messi, they will come because of the extraordinary things he does on the field. When you've been watching Messi at his majestic best, it is sometimes very difficult indeed to turn to a so-so game and see what a supposedly well-coached and well-organized team expects you to enjoy. Messi has the conclusive argument here. His soccer is not just ornamental. It scores goals, plenty of them, breathtaking goals, and it wins games. He has told us in just 64 sturdily beautiful everyday words how his genius thrives and he has shown us with his far from ordinary skills just how dazzling a game of soccer can be. And I just got, not for the first time reading this, chills up my spine. That was a very, very good text and it makes, I mean, it makes beyond sense to me uh i had a, a a conversation with a friend of mine that is a coach talking about who is the best midfielder nowadays in the world like center mid and he was saying kevin de bruyne and i'm like sure he probably is out of the center mids the most effective and you know the past few years i don't get a lot of joy watching him play it's not super exciting so i told my friend i was like Sure, but I would, I would pay a ticket to go watch Pogba if he's at his best. I would pay a ticket to go watch Thiago Contra if he's at his best because they do things with the ball, skills and impressive plays, you know, more skillful, more creative. And, yes, I know they are very inconsistent. 
they are you know Pogba a lot of times has a full year that he doesn't do anything and then he puts the French jersey and the guy just transforms himself it's just crazy I hope he doesn't do it in the World Cup again um, but it's just again I don't want to pay or you know spend time watching just the effectiveness and you know oh yeah Kevin De Bruyne defends really well he possesses the ball really well he does also scores goals and stuff but like I don't see a ton of magic from him he has some really good penetrating pass but it's not something you know a no look pass that you know breaks down the defense or he mags a guy and you know do something crazy or the ball is 100 yards in the air and then comes back and he has a magical touch gluing the ball on his feet like that's the stuff that I want to watch that's the stuff that I enjoy watching that's li- why I for example, one of my favorite players to watch ever was Riquelme from Argentina. He didn't have a ton of su- success in Europe. He did really well with Villarreal, went to a, a semifinal of champions with a small club in Spain, and he was in Barcelona. Didn't, you know, play for Barcelona, didn't do as, as much in Barcelona. But what he loved to do was play for Boca. That's what, that was his passion. All he wanted was play for Boca and La Bombonera, win Libertadores, and play for Argentina. I mean, I grew up in Brazil. You know, I watched Libertadores a ton. Every time I would watch a Boca Juniors game, I would watch him playing. And he would hold the He was a 10, a classical 10. He would hold the ball for ages. Nobody could take the ball from him. He shooted <laughs> the ball really well, super skillful. I mean, it was so fun to watch him play. He reminded me a lot of Zidane like they are very similar players it's just it was just incredible and and then you talk to people that only follow European soccer they're like eh whatever you know yeah he was the number 10 for Argentina but Argentina wasn't that good at the time well it was actually their golden generation but I mean the people don't know how good he was but like it was so fun to watch him play but again could he have stayed in Europe and played all those years in big clubs and just he didn't want it he wanted to have fun and play for Boca which is the club he loved since he was a child and I respect him a ton for that see most coaches I'm gonna get a little crude here they teach their players to be average at making love with no climax which is an interesting way to teach sex I mean, you know, it, it, where's the fun in that? You know, it, it's, you know, scoring a great goal is a climax. It's, it's you know, it's, it's just fantastic. You know, y- your head comes apart when that 25-yard shot bends into the corner of the net. You know, it, it's, it's incredible. You know, we're teaching players to be brilliant, to be creative, to be out of the box, to, to play their own music. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it's so sad that, other coaches are teaching their kids to win, you know, without fun, with no climax. You know, let, you know, let's just, you know, play the odds, play the statistics, and see if we can get to the end of the game, one goal up, and not give up any goals. It's boring. There's no entertainment. There's no real fun for the players that play it. You know, they're, they're just being taught that, you know, they, they have to, you know, somehow find fun in a very average way of approaching the game. My favorite bit from that text that you read, Andy, was was uh, mind controllers and joy destroyers, the coaches. And, like, again, those listening, I've given you a few things to reflect on today. Reflect on that. Like, are you a mind controller and joy destroyer? Like, are you overly tacticked? Um, is that even a word? Uh, is there too much strategery? It should be. It's a good one. Uh, is there too much strategery to use? Strategery? W's word. W is word. And if you are, like, can you start to make changes? Can you start to make, for you, Andy, I mean, you were a mind controller and joy destroyer. We've talked about it. We've chronicled it in your early days of coaching. And you made incremental changes until there was an epiphany in a conversation with Anson Dorrance and then it became a wholesale change which is where you're going next okay so perfect segue so because we rehearsed this before yeah just purely by coincidence and it was um Anson Dorrance the head coach of 18 time NCAA division one champions that's now 22 by the way so this is an old book that I wrote North Carolina wrote the following in his fantastic book training soccer champions 
I remember when I went to recruit Stephanie Zay. She is one of the greatest players I have ever coached, but her career was cut short because she had her ACL cut in half in an NCAA semifinal game against Central Florida. When we went to recruit her, all the parents knew that North Carolina was coming up to scout Stephanie Zay. I'm on the sidelines walking through all these parents and all of them are telling me the same thing. Coach, I don't know if you want her. She's not a team player. She just dribbles the ball. The more I heard this, the more excited I got. I initially went up there with a small scholarship offer in mind. By the time all the parents had told me I didn't want her, I was considering giving her a full ride. She had angered so many people because she took players on constantly. Imagine the strength this 17-year-old girl had to have to keep taking people on when everyone hated her for doing it. Imagine the strength this young girl had to have to maintain the confidence and soccer arrogance to keep dribbling in the midst of all this unbelievable criticism from her teammates and all their parents and probably coaches too. She had to be unbelievably powerful. If I'm standing on the sideline and the parents are telling me not to recruit her, I'm thinking this girl has to be a psychological rock to thrive in this environment. Can you imagine the number of girls who don't have that kind of strength but have Stephanie's talent? They could become wonderful take-on artists, but under the barrage of constant criticism, you're not a team player. You won't pass to my daughter. Why don't you pass to me? You're incredibly selfish. They finally collapse and become these passing players who are a dime a dozen. Sometimes in their desire to create wonderful human beings, and unselfish children, parents sacrifice the quality that makes soccer players great. I would say, this is me, I would say that makes people great in life as well. Yes, I think it's wonderful that their daughter is a team player and bends over backwards for everyone and is real sweet and cooperative and is always looking for a pass before shooting. I'm sure she's a real sweet girl, but that girl's not going to help me win championships. It's great. I must have said this weekend, be more selfish 15 times during my game. Do more. Same yeah. to me. Yeah. Same to me. Yeah, be and more selfish, yeah. It's, it's tough because, again, the kids, you know, they ask for the ball. They demand the ball. They At a certain age, they start yelling at each other. So some of the kids, they, they, don't, they don't want that. Yeah. And Andy often talks, especially with girls. So they, they pass. Yeah. And I'm like, dude, you're 1v1. You're so skillful. Take him on. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. And don't, then I don't yeah, call I, me, dude. <laughs> I wasn't talking to you. I was talking to my players. <laughs> Andy, we've got to start wrapping up here in a minute. Um, as I I've see, got three you more hours of material. I here. see. I see that. Maybe we'll do episode two. Fun part two. Climaxing the second time around. I, I love it. I love uh, it. Um, but uh, the, there's been really good nuggets that came from uh, many of the texts that Andy read and just this conversation. And, and I think that that's a challenge we have as coaches, as leaders, as mentors is are we self-reflecting often enough and, and not, not from a perspective of, I mean, I think everybody or most coaches look at their sessions and, and their games and go, what could I do differently? How could I, how could I, you know, twist or turn to, to provide a, a, a better environment, but are you doing it from the right perspective? Are you doing it from a perspective that, 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 puts more emphasis on um, uh, fun, right? On creativity, on empathizing of artists and inventors and storytellers. Are you doing it from that perspective? If you aren't, then should you be? I think that's the question that, 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 that everybody should be asking after they listen to this episode. Are we ready for a final quote? Uh, yeah, sounds good. Before we wrap it up. This is much shorter than my, my last two. Daniel Coyle is, is a guru of you know what makes individuals special at different sports which is where him and i are what's what we have in common guru i'm shocked i'm shocked that you could even say that and not just absolutely you know you know just fall to the floor with a heart attack and be struck down by god you know it, <laughs> you haven't seen me coach lately Andy. you know <laughs> <laughs> um you never lacked in confidence andrew <laughs> i'd say that you, your belief exceeded your ability. <laughs> <laughs> as, as it has for all great people. You don't get anywhere being humble. <laughs> you shot for the moon, 
no, and achieve the bottom of the mine shaft. <laughs> <laughs> hey, can I get back to coil? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> but that's exactly what they're doing. And here's why. Look beneath any talent hotbed and you'll find simple, intense, player-invented games. Venice Beach skateboarders riding inside an empty swimming pool. Brazilian soccer players on the football de Saleo court. Did I say that right? No, that's Futebol no, de Salão. Uh, yes, Come that on. was better. <laughs> tell, tell the audience how it should Fut- be said. Futebol de Salão. Salão. Futebol. How do you get futebol out of F-U-T-B-O-L? Well, Futur. It's got C-N-H in it. That's what... No, Futi. <laughs> futebol. That's how we say it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, uh, so Brazilian... Soccer players on the football. De Salon. De Salon. De, de Salon. Yeah, that was better. That, that football rem- de Salon. That doesn't court. remind me of Cirque du Soleil like last time. <laughs> <laughs> Are you calling me a clown? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying that your Portuguese is terrible. <laughs> I'm going to wear a red nose next, next podcast. Um, Cricketer Don Bradman learning to hit by bouncing a golf ball off of a dented water tank. Or baseball players trying to hit a flying yogurt lid. lid. Yogurt is, is how the Americans say it. Yogurt is how English people say it. So you're wrong. I'm not sure how the, the Brazilians say it. But. Uh, neurally speaking, it's all the same story. A simple, small, concentrated game controlled and played by kids. They play when they want. They get tons of reps. They create ladders of competition, always reaching upward. They get obsessed. They combine deep practice with the power of identity to earn myelin in excelsis. They grow super fast neural broadband. Does that make sense? Yep, 100%. And you know why they're, why they're doing it? Why is the ultimate reason? Because it's fun. Because it's enjoyable. You know, no coach, you know, pees on their bonfire. You know, it's, this is enjoyable stuff. You know, and and they get to have a blast while they're doing it. And they might just become the next Leo Messi. Right? Or Andrew Clifton. Uh, And we've got got to end on that note because, (laughs) you know, we need to end on a a note of absolute ridicule. (laughs) Hey, you were his coach. You created them also. So, (laughs) (laughs) Worst worst coaching job I ever did. (laughs) 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 With 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 an exclamation point on the time he threw the ball in his own net. Uh, Audience, thank you so much for indulging us and listening. Hopefully you're getting something from it and maybe a laugh or two. If you'd be kind enough, share this with another coach, another soccer enthusiast. We'd we'd love it. Honestly, our stats have been improving. The podcast is growing. We're hearing from more and more people with questions and and thoughts and asking for additional resources. Keep that up. We love it um, because this is something that we love to do. So thank you so much. Good stuff, Andy. Good stuff, Philippe. Thank you. Thank you, everybody.